Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In police stations across the country... Officers start their shifts in the briefing room. It's a place where law enforcement can speak openly and candidly about safety, training, policy, crime trends, and more. We think it's time to invite you in, so pull up a chair. Welcome to The Briefing Room. Today, you're going to hear about a day in the life of a medical examiner. Medical examiners are a key link in the chain of investigators when someone dies. They're the ones who determine the cause and manner of death. So we asked Dr. Mark Super, a highly skilled veteran who worked mostly in Central and Northern California, to join us. You're going to hear how he became a forensic pathologist, because really, how does someone end up in that job? About what it means to go above and beyond as a medical examiner and he'll tell us a little bit about what he wishes the people he works with, police, ER doctors, nurses, knew about his job to make autopsies easier. And we'll ask him about some of his most interesting cases as well. Without further ado, Dr. Super. Thank you. Over the years, we've had a lot of guests on our two different podcasts that we have. We've never had a forensic pathologist as far as I can remember. And we thought it would be helpful to give our listeners a little bit of insight into what the medical examiner provides as far as being a stakeholder in the, in the greater criminal justice community and beyond. Before we get into that, I was hoping we could just have you, Dr. Super, kind of give us a little bit of a bio on your jurisdiction, the population you serve, and kind of what, what typical work day or work week looks like for your office. Okay, I practice in California, which is um, predominantly a sheriff coroner state. Death is investigated on a county level in California. There's 58 counties, and the vast majority of them are sheriff coroner jurisdictions. My understanding is a sheriff coroner county, you have the elected sheriff who's elected by the people. He also serves as the county coroner. He then appoints a chief deputy coroner. In this case, it would be someone like you who goes in and does death investigations. Is that correct? Yes. I practice full-time in Merced County. We have a sheriff. I also have a private practice, and I go all over Northern California doing work for other coroners and private work as well. Okay. And is that kind of in a consulting capacity where you get called in to give a, another opinion on a case? No, I don't do that as much. Uh, it's mostly 
they need somebody to do autopsies uh, <laughs> because there's very few of us out here. Um, sometimes people are gone, they're on vacation, they need help. And so I'll go up and do a case, especially in some of the far-flung, low-population counties like Humboldt County, which I had worked for like over 20 years. I did all of their homicides. Oh, small world. My brother and I have spent quite a bit of time playing baseball in Eureka, which is in Humboldt County. Oh, well, <laughs> I have some great <laughs> stories about Eureka. <laughs> Very excited to hear about Eureka stories. First, let's give some context to what a medical examiner does. When a dead body ends up in your office, what do you do? What scenarios require your participation and expertise? Take us through a day in the life of Dr. Mark Super. Well, just like everybody's born, you have to have a birth certificate. So when you die, you have to have a death certificate, and that's what the coroner's main job is to do. And when people die, most people die of some kind of natural death, over 60% of people. And most of those people have a doctor. People know that, they, that they're dying or they, they're not, it's, their death is not unexpected. But then there's those cases where uh, people die suddenly or they die of some means that's not natural. So the coroner must investigate. So let's say overnight somebody dies or two or three people die and they could transport it to our office. Then we would look at them. First of all, we have to make sure we identify them. That's, that could be a big problem if you <laughs> misidentify somebody. That could get you in the papers and things would go bad in a hurry. Right. And that's fingerprints. Most people will do fingerprints right off the bat. And, and as you know, there's, there's large uh, databases that we can automatically look up who somebody is, which is a big help. Then we decide, are we going to just do an external examination or are we going to autopsy this individual? Sometimes it's, it's an older person. It's obvious and natural, but they don't have a doctor. Some people are really smart. They don't go to doctors. <laughs> they don't believe in doctors. <laughs> but they still have to have a death certificate. Then we'll go ahead and do an autopsy. And when you get done, we can we hopefully we'll have a cause of death. Nowadays, with this opioid crisis um, and the fentanyl deaths are so high, most of our autopsies are now, we do the autopsies and they end up as pending, pending cause of death because they're waiting for tox results to come out. And that takes many weeks usually. Then we have to decide on the manner of deaths. So what, what a lot of people don't realize that it's, it's not just the cause of death, but it's the manner of death that goes on to the death certificate. That's, was it a homicide? That means death at the hands of another person. Is it a suicide? Death at their own hands. Is it an accident? Was it some unforeseen event that resulted in their death? Or is it a small percent of the cases we just don't know what it is? Sometimes they're, you know, they're so decomposed or they're even skeletonized, we may not know how this individual died. But then our day is mixed up with other things like court appearances. We do have to testify in court. And so that sometimes takes up a large part of our day. Hopefully, forensic pathologists are going to scenes. I've always made it my point to go to homicide scenes if possible. If the body is at the scene, hasn't been transported to a hospital or something, I, I respond and I go and I look at the body at the scene. To me, that's where the autopsy starts. So that's kind of how my day goes. As a former detective, I would have really enjoyed having our medical examiner out at the scene. Our medical examiner in our jurisdiction where Dan and I worked, very, very good. He had his deputies that went out and made on-scene determinations and those types of things. But you're right. The crime scene and the autopsy would definitely start for you seeing kind of the circumstances and the lay of the land out where the body's found, correct? 
Yes, and I, I'm answering a lot of questions in my own head that I don't have to ask you. <laughs> but you know, what, what's nearby and what position is the person in? Um, you're giving me kind of a status on what happened. So questions about how long do I think the person's been dead? Sometimes I can give the police a good idea or based on what the police tell me and based on what I find at the exam at the scene, I can say, well, that's pretty consistent with what you know, or it's, it's not inconsistent. This person's been dead longer, or this person hasn't been dead that long. So sometimes I can say those kind of things at the scene and things that are moving along. Okay. Nowadays, at 70 years old, I'm, I go to the homicide scenes, and I'm the most experienced person there by far. So I can sometimes be of help. It hasn't been that uncommon where I'll go, this isn't even a homicide. Interesting. Dr. Supra, I'd like to go back just a little bit into your personal history. You're from Bismarck, North Dakota, and then went into the Navy. I think that uh, when you're not around an ocean growing up, I think going into the Navy might be an interesting choice. Can you give us a little bit of your background growing up and your decision to join the Navy? I went to the University of North Dakota from, uh, from I grew up in, uh, in Bismarck, as you said, and I, I graduated in physical therapy. So I became a physical therapist. That's what I was doing. I went back to Bismarck and I was practicing and I enjoyed working with the elderly. I, I, I love talking to old people and, and hearing their stories and helping them get better. When I decided to go back to medical school, I went and, and I, I was accepted to the University of North Dakota. My intention was to become a geriatrist. And it wasn't until I was a fourth year medical student, I was allowed to do an autopsy. I'd watched one and I got to do one. This is 1979. I did my first autopsy and I said, oh, this is great, I really like this. So I became a pathologist. Well, not having a lot of money, uh, I was fortunate enough to get a Navy scholarship. And even though I'm in North Dakota, you know, the Navy, they gave two of us in my class scholarships. So when I graduated, I went out to San Diego to start my, my residency. I didn't know anything about forensic pathology, nothing. I just liked doing autopsies on pathology. Well, my second year, they, uh, the Navy sent a forensic pathologist to take over the morgue at Naval Hospital San Diego, which was, which was a large military hospital, one of the largest in the, in the world. And I'm talking to him and he says he's a forensic pathologist. I thought, what is that? I didn't even know. I, mean, I come from Bismarck. How many, how many <laughs> homicides are there in Bismarck like in, in, a, in a century? Right. So he says, well, you know, you, you do autopsies on people that have been murdered, and then you, you work with police, and then you testify about how the person died under these homicide circumstances. And I went, really? Really? <laughs> you get to do autopsies, which I like, and you get to work with the cops and, do, and figure out why people were were killed. And I said, where do I sign up for that? <laughs> right. Do you remember the moment you put the scalpel in for the first time? Oh, yes. Was there hesitancy before that? Or was it just straight excitement? I can't wait to get in and, and see what I find. It was it was excitement. I, I'd watched a couple and I thought, I just felt like this was where I wanted to be. It just kind of felt so natural that this, this is where my brain kind of works. I was really thinking about medicine. To me, autopsies was medicine. So I was thinking, I'm going to help other doctors. I'm going to figure, help families figure out why somebody died. That was my thinking when I went into pathology in the first place. And just ballpark, how many full autopsies do you think you've done? 
I know exactly how many I've done. I've done over 13,600. Wow. It's been 43 years. So. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So eight years in the Navy as a lieutenant commander doing pathology. Where was the transition when you move on to be a county coroner? How did that uh, progress for you? Well, I was in San Diego. I was finishing my obligation. When I finished my fellowship, the Navy sent me back to San Diego to run the morgue. I was, I was the first junior officer to run that morgue in the history of its time. Um, and they built a new hospital there. I did the first autopsy in the new San Diego Naval Hospital. Anyway, as I was ending my obligation, I was starting to work on the weekends at the then coroner's office. San Diego was still a coroner's office in those days. And I would go on Saturdays and I would do some, they would give me so many autopsies due and I would do them for $100 a piece. But that was, that was 100 bucks. Oh, it's like getting overtime. <laughs> oh, yeah. And as, yeah, you love it. As a young, you know, I had young children. That was extra money that I really needed. So, but at the same time, San Diego was, was planning on becoming a medical examiner's system. And they were going to do away with the coroner altogether. So at the very time that I'm getting out, they needed full-time forensic pathologists. So they knew who I was. So the, one day I was still in the Navy, and the next day I was a medical examiner, a deputy medical examiner in San Diego County. On the, on the very <laughs> first day that, it, that the ME office opened up, I was one of their MEs. Can you explain the difference between a coroner's office and then an ME's office system? Well, I always explain it by a medical examiner is a forensic pathologist with an attitude. Because as a coroner, a coroner is a, is a political title. So that person might be appointed, uh, that person might be elected, but there's nothing about their training as a 
physician or as a medical person that has anything to do with their job. They just have to fulfill this public office. San Diego at that time was an appointed by the Board of Supervisors. Right. So just to clarify, a coroner is typically elected by the people, sometimes appointed in the city or state that they work in. But in some cases, they might not even have medical training. They're simply holding the office of the coroner. Whereas an ME, medical examiner, has to have a degree from a medical school and have a certification from the state. Yes. There are a few counties in California where they abolished the coroner altogether and they set up a medical examiner's office. So a forensic pathologist is deciding the cause and the manner of death. And that person is filling the death certificate out. But in a coroner system, a coroner can't do an autopsy. That's a medical procedure. So a coroner has to hire a forensic pathologist to do the autopsies. But the coroner, there's nothing to stop the coroner from not even caring what you say. I mean, they could technically put down on the death certificate whatever they wanted. But you can imagine how you can get into political situations that way. Oh, absolutely. Especially when it comes to the manner of death. When police are involved in someone's death, in the old days, they would just call them accidents and just go on. Even though maybe the scene was not quite that, if they one person looked at it. It's interesting you mentioned that, Dr. Super. Dan and I uh, frequently speak about how victims and their families are directly affected by the competence of the detective that's assigned to the case. And in this instance, I'm sure it's the same for you. A medical examiner or a deputy medical examiner out on a scene is at the mercy of whatever law enforcement has done at that scene uh, prior to the medical examiner's arrival. So in some instances, you might have a pristine scene that's been really well handled by an investigator. But Dan and I have both seen plenty of instances where, where a scene can be mishandled or in evidence can be misinterpreted. Do you run into that? Well, when I was first a, a new deputy uh, medical examiner in San Diego, as I recall, San Diego had like three, maybe four teams of uh, detectives that were on their homicide team. And they had been together for years and years. So these were, I don't want to say crusty, but you kind of know what we're talking about. Salty veterans that have seen it all. Yes. And we were told that they weren't going to be very um, accepting of some young guy showing up at their scene and, you know, some kind of know-it-all. So I was a little hesitant when I went to my first scene early in this time. Mm -hmm. And I showed up at this homicide scene and I said, I'm Dr. Super, I'm here for this. And the detective said, well, what took you so long? <laughs> they were totally accepting from day one. They couldn't figure out why nobody ever came before. It's great to have another set of eyes, especially one who you know is gonna be the last person to see this, this victim. I want that person to know everything about the case. I can't tell you how many times police have, there'll be at scenes and they're talking to each other and they'll, they'll point to something on the body and they'll say, well, that's a powder stain or that's, and, I, and I'm thinking to them, no, that's not what that is. No, 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 no. Or they, they, have the, they have the range of fire or the direction of fire totally opposite what it really is. And, and sometimes you can, you can tell at the scene mm -hmm. and they, they're just wrong. They're wrong right off the bat. So it does help to have somebody have another set of eyes. Or it's, it helps to say, let's just kind of wait until we get to the autopsy before we decide what we know what's happened here. Yeah, the, the worst thing is to have to 
course correct after you've characterized something as one thing and it turns out to be something completely different. I do remember my, my first autopsy as a detective. Um, I'd been to one as a patrol officer simply for a training exercise uh, to get me used to, you know, what this was going to be because I always had the goal to be a detective and I knew this, this was on the horizon for me. Um, I remember the medical examiner uh, having me roll prints. So roll the fingerprints of the subject that was on the table who he was going to be examining, um, which I was a little hesitant to do. I think it was to kind of break my mind out of what I'm actually looking at and get involved in the process. Um, it was great. But going back to that, that first autopsy as a detective, by all means, this case looked like it could have been an overdose, something else. And we get into the autopsy and the medical examiner, our doctor, quickly determines you've got a homicide on your hands. And I felt a rush come over my body. And I'm imagining that uh, there are times when you are doing an autopsy and you start seeing things that completely change the course of direction for an investigation. Can you tell us what, what those moments are like for you? Well, they're, they're the things that kind of make it fun to do this. I mean, it, it's kind of why we're doing it. Like all jobs, there's a lot of mundane stuff that happens with dead bodies. But we'll be doing an autopsy, and I'll, I'll say, whoa, this bullet, we thought it was doing this direction. And we always like to have the police there, some detective there from the agency. And I don't know you. If you have that experience, they send the person that's the least knowledgeable to the autopsy. <laughs> we usually send the case agent, the one who's going to be leading it. We want them to see everything. That's good. That's good. Because yep. sometimes they're just looking at me like, I don't know. They just told me to come here. I hate that. But anyway, I'll go. So let's, let's go back to the scene. Where did you say this blow was supposed to come from? And it totally changes everything they think about the scene. Uh, some finding that I've had. I had a case where there were two bullet holes, and I thought it was an in on one side and an out on the other side. But when I got in there, there were two bullets. Huh. So <laughs> things can change on a dime in the middle of the autopsy. They can. Yeah, they totally can. I've been there when it happened. Dr. Super, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, I watched that Netflix series, Murder Mountain. I was wondering if you were involved in any of those investigations, because I know they happened in Southern Humboldt County. So there's, there's five homicides they discuss in Murder Mountain. I autopsied all five of those people. For our listeners who aren't familiar, Murder Mountain was a Netflix series, but it really discusses the many disappearances and murders that have occurred in Southern Humboldt County, and they all revolve around the marijuana industry and uh, these growers that are up in the mountains. And it really kind of goes into a little more detail about one particular case where a cannabis grower was actually murdered. I was going up there for years. Well, I did the famous one where the uh, Mr. Ford, who walked into the sheriff's office up and said, I've been a very bad boy. And he pulled a woman's breast out of his pocket. For listeners, this was 1998 when Wayne Adam Ford turned himself in. He's now on death row at San Quentin. Yes. And so that got people pretty concerned. So that afternoon, I, I was out digging up various parts of this woman that he, had, that he had dismembered and buried. He was a trucker, and he ended up being tried for several women along his way. He just decided to admit to it 
one day and there it was. And the torso, that one with the pieces that I had, was just identified through familiar DNA. Oh, wow. They finally found out who this young woman was. And the family has, they didn't know where she was for years, for years and years. Because the police said, well, you know, she's an adult. She can take off if she wants. We don't have to track her down. So they had no idea where this young woman went, and she's been dead for all these years. So the victim in that case was 25-year-old Carrie Ann Cummings, and they were finally able to identify her. The closure that provides a family, invaluable. That's why we want the answers. I don't care if it comes in 10 years or, or 20 years, but we got to get some answers here. There's too many people that care. Yes. We had a case of what I called the uh, Thelma and Louise case. So these two guys, they're going to buy some marijuana. They're going to buy some dope. That's not a big deal. I mean, that's just commerce up in Humboldt County. So <laughs> they, don't, they don't pay for it. They just take the dope and take off. So the person that was supposed to get the money called the police because, by God, they... <laughs> I've been robbed. <laughs> I've been robbed. <laughs> <laughs> that was a legitimate crime. So they start chasing these guys up these mountain roads. And they're exchanging gunfire with these guys. And one of them has an M14. And the other one has a, like a 45 a semi-automatic pistol. The, I think the driver. So they're, they're chasing these guys on this mountain road. So they decide to put the strip down and take out their tires. And they do that. Now they're riding on these rims on these mountain roads. So they decided to just aim for the cliff. And so they aimed for the cliff, and they went over the cliff, and they're kind of talking on the phone saying, you know, you're not going to stop us. So as they went over the cliff, the driver takes his semi-automatic pistol and shoots his accomplice. And then he shoots himself in the head. On their way down. On their way down. So, so the car goes down a cliff. And so the police are up there. They're looking down going, what the heck was that? Next thing you know, the driver's crawling back up. He shot himself in the face. He didn't do the job. So he ended up being tried for the other guy's murder in the robbery and all the shooting of the police and stuff. I kind of love the poetry of that. <laughs> it was, uh, that was Humboldt County stuff. Like Humboldt County craziness? Yes, absolutely. So, Dr. Super, you said you worked in Merced County, which is more central California. Does that cover Yosemite National Park? No, Mariposa County does. Mariposa County, okay. I recently visited Yosemite and became fascinated by some stories of unfortunate circumstances that led to people's deaths in that park. And I thought it was really interesting because they had really uh, broken it down to like deaths at waterfalls and deaths on, on the roads there. And I was just curious if, if you'd covered any of those cases. For many years, I also did all the autopsies in Madeira County. And okay. as you know, part of the park is in Madeira County. Oh, yeah. And there's mountainous rural areas around the park in that county. Well, we had a case where a, a man, he's, he's a um, tour guide, and he knows where these natural water slides are up there. So he takes a bunch of... Japanese tourists out on this hike up to this water slide. He says, I'll show you how this works. 
So he, he climbs to the top of the slide and he slides down. And then when he gets to the bottom, he stands up and then he just says, O-S-H-I-T and falls like several hundred feet off a cliff. While these poor Japanese people are looking, uh, now what? How did we get here and how do we get back? Right. He's got the keys, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. He, he knew how to get there. And he broke about everything. Oh, man. So this tour guide shows these people what should be a really fun experience for him. But when he gets to the bottom of the water slide, he loses his footing and plummets to his death. Yeah. Oh, my God. What does a fall of several hundred feet do to a human body? I have my own assumptions. Ones that hit solid ground, they have major fractures of the long bones and, and thorax and, and usually head too. I've done some parachutes too. I mean, people, the parachutes are open. Or in, in the military, I've, I've done um, like Green Beret type, those special forces that do low altitude jumps. Right. That don't work sometimes. Yeah, the parachute doesn't deploy. Well, they jump high, but it's not high enough for the chute to deploy. Got it. Yeah, it's a straightforward training accident, but it's fatal. What are the types of cases that really interest you or get you very engaged versus what are the more mundane things that, and I'm not even talking about autopsies. I'm, what's your favorite part of your job? What's, what's your least favorite part of your job? My favorite part of the job has always been going to the scenes and seeing what's going on because that's, that's where the excitement is for us. It's different than working in a lab all day. Um, I always found the asphyxial desk to be the most um, challenging because there's not a lot, of, a lot of wounds. A lot of people can see somebody who's been shot 10 times and kind of figure out that they weren't going to make it. Not to say that they're not important, but as far as figuring out why somebody died and using my head... Those kind of cases are the, are the best. You said asphyxial, like choking or strangling, lack of air. Yes. You like figuring out puzzles. Yes. People have been smothered, people that have been strangled, um, people that have been poisoned and made to look like something else. Uh, those are the ones that are really make it worthwhile. And you go, yeah, I'm, now I know why I'm doing this. You know, over the years, you've been doing this for, I think you said 40 years. Is that right? Over 40 years. Over 40 years. You started in 79, I believe. Is that correct? That was my first autopsy <laughs> as a medical student. <laughs> yeah. First autopsy in 79 up to current day. We're in 2023. And the changes in forensic science, can you talk about what that's been like from your perspective? Like night and day. For all sorts of reasons. DNA probably, in my tenure, DNA has been the number one thing that's really changed what we do and changed how we figure out who did what and how to identify somebody. Now we're identifying much more people using state-of-the-art DNA stuff. I think that's the big change. The technical changes, I mean, I was, we were typing reports in those days. We'd have to type the reports, then would, there would be two mistakes and then the stenographer would have to retype the whole thing. Uh, and then there was also the, the days when we, before digital photography, we'd take all these photographs of the autopsy and then they'd run them down to the store. And then the next day they'd pick them up and they'd be all, you know, out of focus. And those days <laughs> when digital photography came around, to me, that was, for me, that was the greatest thing. 
Because we can, I can see right away if the photo's not what I want. And you can take 100 of them. I wish, we've tried to relay that to, as detectives, to patrol officers for years. Like, hey, you know, there's a little disc and it saves lots of these things on one little digital disc. Take three times as many as you thought you needed. Yes. There's never enough. <laughs> yes. Polaroids were a big deal. Remember how much those cost a, a pop? Oh, yeah. So if we used three or four boxes of those in the corner, it starts to grumble. Right, like you're hitting my budget now. Yeah, absolutely. And those are things to be concerned with. I, I think back to a few of our cases where we want to throw the, the body through a full body scan just to see what it looks like underneath. And there's concerns about, well, you know, that's going to cost a few thousand dollars to throw this person in the machine and get a scan, is it something we really need? Those are things where I'm like, <laughs> it's a murder. Yeah, we need it. The right answer is let's do it the right way. Oh, absolutely. Digital extras are another example of that. In the small rural jurisdictions, it was uncommon to get any kind of x-ray on a firearm injury. It was uncommon. And the coroners couldn't figure out why that we even needed those. Mm -hmm. It took all we could to, to convince them that you can't investigate a firearm injury with an x-ray. You just can't. I don't care what you want to say about it. I don't care who saw what. You really need an x-ray. Right. Because there could be still a bullet in there. You think you know what happened, but you don't know what happened. Yeah. So digital x-rays have been a real big help. And now they're affordable, so even the smaller agencies often have one. And you can take a whole bunch of x-rays. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We have a lot of law enforcement and first responders that listen to our podcast. What are some things, as a medical examiner with tons of experience... Are there things that you wish were being taught in police academies and ongoing training with law enforcement that would really aid you when you get called out to a scene and then you have to do your follow-up work? I always advise people, especially in the emergency rooms, those people are really good at what they do. I mean, God bless them. I mean, they save people. But they should not tell people what entrances and exits are. They should... They should quit doing that. They should quit making these kind of statements that so often are, are wrong. The investigation will find out that they weren't even close. They think because they see a lot of gunshot wounds coming through the ER that, that they know what happened. No, they, they know what to do about it. <laughs> they, know, they know how to help the person, but they don't actually look at the wound itself. That's what I do. So these are all things that come up in court I imagine if, if you've got statements from ER personnel or other law enforcement personnel who are putting statements in reports 
and then it contradicts what you found at the autopsy, I, I would imagine that that is just ripe pickings for a defense attorney. Oh, yeah. I've had that happen a whole bunch of times. I, I've had defense attorneys try to blame the surgeons for, you know, for just because they tried to save the person. Now they can't figure out why the person died. I've, I've seen all of that stuff. But it's easily overcome. It really is. It's, it's easy to explain things to juries because juries aren't stupid. I think a lot of people think juries are some maybe just mm-hmm. don't know what they're doing. They're, they're intelligent people. When you just talk to them plainly, this is what happened to the dead person. That's my job in the courtroom. I don't get any reward if the defendant is convicted. Right. Doesn't help me any. And I'm not there to convict him. In fact, if him or her, because if they got the wrong person, I don't want to be part of the whole thing. Right. Right. My job is to tell the jury or the judge what happened to the deceased person as clearly and concisely as I can in words that people understand. Sometimes medical and scientific terms are kind of go over some people's heads, but I can explain it, kind of a Midwestern kid, say this is how this happened. They'll nod, you can see the jurors, they'll nod, they get it. Okay, now I'm on the same page with you. That's my job. Have you had any memorable showdowns in court? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I had a case where the prosecution really wanted the photographs and, you know, you're probably experienced with this, where the defense gets all the photographs eliminated because they're prejudicial. Right. But they don't tell me that. I show up and I start to talk about the injuries and, and I'll say something about, well, you can see this on a photograph or something like that. And they'll go, oh, you know, and there's a big sidebar and everybody's yelling at everybody. Right. So the, the prosecutor goes, well, Dr. Super, don't you think it would be better for you if you had the pictures? And the judge just slammed his gavel down and he threatens to send this DA out to fix parking tickets for the next six years. I mean, it's a big old thing. Well, then he does it again. About five minutes later, he insinuates that, you know, pictures will be better. So that was it. Oh, yeah. I got hauled into chambers. It was, it was a child death. And so there's, there's an easel there with my diagrams. And the judge goes, Dr. Zuber, do you think you can... You can testified to these by, by this diagram. And I'm going, well, I can. I mean, it's, not, it's not a matter of what I know. I said, I, I think I can explain these injuries based on these diagrams. Obviously, the photographs help. He says, I know, I know, I know. And then he says, and he explains to me why they're not going to get in. So then we go back out, and I'm going to start my kind of discussion with my diagrams. Well, no, a juror's passed a note to the judge saying he'd like to see pictures. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> More gavels, more pounding, more yelling. (laughs) Sometimes I think some of those rulings are the judge doesn't want to see that stuff. I'm not, I'm not allowing it because I don't want to deal with it. I can understand how in a kid case that would be cumulative and a little bit prejudicial. I understand horrific pictures. There is testifying to those types of things. You have to be sensitive to what you're explaining, but at the same time, this is the facts about what this person did to this person. Let's, let's talk about it. That's what we're here for. Yeah. So I'm always curious when I see a certain uh, kind of cadre of, of medical examiners who end up being expert witnesses for the defense and that you, I would imagine that you have 
experience in being a rebuttal witness or defense brings an expert in to rebut what you've determined during your autopsy. Can you talk about what that experience is like for you? I hate it. I don't plan on doing much of it. Um, that doesn't mean it's, I guess it's not helpful. I mean, everyone deserves their time. They, they deserve a representation of their opinions. And we're supposed to be criticizing each other just as professionals, which I don't like. I don't like to testify that this other pathologist is wrong and they're like insinuate that they're dumb or that they're, they're sloppy. I don't like that. A lot of people only come across a dead body a couple of times in their life. For someone who sees death and destruction and harm and, and people being maimed so often, I'm wondering, how does dealing with death as frequently as you do, how does it affect you? The psychological part of this kind of started with me and um, in my fellowship. So you become a pathologist. In order to be a forensic pathologist, you have to be a general pathologist first. So you go to residency for that. And then the Navy fortunately sent me to Washington, D.C. Uh, to become a forensic pathologist. And there was only one slot in the whole world that was open, and they chose me to go there. Wow. And it was 1984, 1985, when I was actually doing full-time forensic pathology. And that was in Baltimore, in Washington, D.C., in the city. And... I stuffed myself around six, eight months into it. And I, I coined the term in my own head was tired eyes. I felt, I felt like worn out. Mm -hmm. um, I was starting to get kind of emotionally detached from things. It just seemed near the end of my fellowship, I went through this kind of veil where one part of my brain just set all this emotional stuff aside. And I realized somebody at the scene has to be the person going, you know, this is what we have to do. We have to get this, we have to do this, we have to do this. We can't worry about how things look and how sad everybody is and how distraught all the families are and the community is. Somebody has to be the person that's gonna get all this information down and get it right. Absolutely. And get it documented because we want somebody to go down for this if it's crime. And I could be the one that has to do that. So I was able to put that aside and, I, and it worked for years and years and years. But now as I, I'm gonna retire here in a few weeks after all this time. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's, it's started to affect me again. I'm, I'm not surprised, to be honest. It's creeping up. Yeah. So it's really time for me to get out. Yeah, it, I think the, uh, sometimes the box that we all stuff it in gets a little disorganized and the, and the lid pops open sometimes. Yes. How do you deal with it? And how does your family and close friends deal with it? what you handle on a day-to-day -day basis in life for the last 40 plus years? Well, my, my, my individual family, I mean, I've, I've, my wife just recently died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. She was an investigator, so she kind of knew what I did. We met when I was an ME. My first wife, you can see I just got detached. I mean, those kind of things that happened to you, it didn't, it didn't help my marriage, let's put it that way. Right. Um, but the other people in your life, they want you to entertain them at parties. I don't have anybody noticed that? It's like, what that, was your... It's the genesis of our podcast, honestly. <laughs> Tell me a story. Yes. What's the goriest thing you've ever seen? That kind of thing. It's really... I have, I have two or three cases that I, I'll, I kind of throw out there because they were so cool. 
and in the autopsy it changed everything. But I don't like to go into the you know the dismembered people and that I've, and the kids that are starved. I did the kids that were that were starved and beaten and left in the storage bin in Reading. Mm-hmm. That case, it's just it was horrific. And and then I'm autopsying at Christmas time, and I have my own kids. So it it has been kind of brutal on my psyche over over 40 years. Uh, but other people love to hear about that stuff. They just do. I mean, I'm a hit at parties. It's one of the things that we talk about. I, I say, when I go to a dinner party or I'm at a barbecue with folks, there can be all kinds of people with, you know, much, much more esteemed credentials than I have. But typically firefighters and cops and medical staff, people who work in hospitals, especially get, you know, acute cases, we get asked a lot about, well, tell me about your job. You you're usually have the most interesting stories at, at these types of functions. So people tend to want to ask about things, but there is a proper way to ask those things. Yeah, and, and sometimes I'm, I'm at the party to get away from that. Right. So now I'm back immersed in it all and, and, and bringing it all back in my own brain. Can't escape. Yes. Yep. Uh, what's the rest of your day look like? Are you doing anything that you enjoy in your job or are you stuck doing the mundane? Well, I'm no longer doing any autopsies in Merced County. I'm, I'm semi-retired now and just closing cases. And by the end of the month, I'm going to be, I'm ready to get on to being a grandpa. Well, that's well-deserved, sir. Thank you. Do you have a favorite baseball team? Well, right now it's the Giants, but I'm kind of a homer. So when I moved back down to San Diego, I was a big Padre fan in the day before I moved up to Northern California. Then I became a rabid Giant fan. Yeah. And now I can see me in a couple of years being a Padre fan again. We'll see. But right now it's the Giants. Oh, We're both Dodger fans. Uh Uh-oh. Oh. oh. You mean the (laughs) scum-sucking Dodgers. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Dr. Super... Really appreciate your time. I know you're busy, and uh, I hope you enjoy your retirement and get away from it all. Thank you very much. Thank you for so many years of service for our country and the county that you served. Thank you. Appreciate it. On the next episode of The Briefing Room. You know, with a lot of these child abduction suspects, when they're interviewed, they will say the victim was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And it wasn't like this perpetrator was out stalking them or had been watching them or, you know, picked them out ahead of time. It literally was, they're looking for a victim and the victim presented themselves. That's next week on The Briefing Room. The Briefing Room is produced by Jessica Halstead and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. Executive producers are Gary Scott and me, Yardley Smith. Our production manager is Logan Heftel. Logan also composed the theme music. Soren Bajan is our senior audio editor. Monica Scott runs our social media. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. Thank you to Speech Docs for providing transcripts. To read those transcripts or to hear past episodes, please go to our website at thebriefingroompod.com. The Briefing Room is an Audio 99 production. And I cannot go without saying thank you to you 
All of you, our fans, you are the best fans in the pod universe. And I can say with complete confidence, nobody is better than you. 